This is our fourth and final study in our four-part series entitled, Are You Ready? Are you ready? You know, immediately when I say that, I feel like I want to say, Are you ready to rumble? You know, like that kind of thing. And what we were talking about, if you're hopping in late with the theme of our study, was talking about, are you ready to do what God has called you to do? Are you ready regardless of who says you shouldn't do it? Are you ready regardless of how dangerous or difficult or difficult uh, or taxing it may be? Are you ready? Because that is the main thing. We want to be ready for game day, so to speak. We want to be ready for what God has called us to do. And a lot of times that means doing the difficult, doing the things that people say, well, that's unprecedented. Nobody's ever done that before. Doing things that maybe people question your sanity. They question whether, you know, you should be doing that or not because of the danger involved. As we see the story of Paul unfolding, we're going to look back a little bit on the history of what caused us to even have this study entitled, Are You Ready? Father, we ask that as we open your word that you would speak to us. Give us ears to hear, Lord, what your spirit would say. And Lord, help us not to be doers, help us not to be hearers of the word only, but doers also. And Lord, I pray today that you would help us regardless if we're just starting off our walk with you or Lord, we've been walking with you for a while. I pray, God, that you would help us to be more like you and less like us. And Lord, that you would use us in greater capacities. Stretch us, take us out of our comfort zones, and may we see you meet us exactly where you have called us to be, Lord. May we walk in the center of your perfect will. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people say... Amen. Acts chapter 22, looking back at verses 23 and 24, it says, Then as they cried out, the people, the Jews that were listening to Paul speak, they tore off their clothes and they threw dust into the air. And the Roman commander ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. This scourging was a big deal. See, if you were to be scourged, the Romans used that as a tactic to elicit a confession. They would take your shirt off. They would bend you around a wooden post. They would chain your hands to that post. And as your back was arched and your skin was bare, you would then have the executioner or the centurion would come with a leather handle similar to what a tennis racket would look like. And out of that handle had nine long leather straps that came out of it. Think of it as nine long belts. And in those belts were embedded shards of clay, glass, and rock. And they would take that instrument, this cat of nine tails, and they would whip the person that was bound to that post. And they did it in order to get a confession. Because if somebody did something wrong and they're not confessing to that crime, then they were going to find out exactly if they did or did not do it. Did not do it or they did. And you would be surprised, history tells us, of people just confessing whatever they have ever done in their entire life. I did it! It was me because this was so painful. It was an absolutely dreaded way of getting a confession from a prisoner. So Paul, they say of Paul, take this guy in. Look what he did. This crowd has gone crazy since he was talking to them. We'll find out exactly what he has done. And we'll usually see a confession of guilt after only a few stripes. 
So you can imagine if you think in your, you know, your, 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 your brains here about Bible similarities with Jesus, how frustrating it must have been for the executioner whipping Jesus when he had truly nothing to confess that was sin or that was wrong. You know, I don't think it's a far stretch of the imagination to say that the centurions kind of would wager with each other and say, hey, I'll get this guy to crack in two strikes. I'll get this guy to crack under five. And then you would just see the frustration mount as confessions weren't coming out because there was nothing to confess. Many times a prisoner would actually die during this scourging process. And so verse 25 of Acts 22, as they bound him with these leather thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And this is a rhetorical question because it was completely illegal to do what they were doing to a Roman citizen. Paul was ready to take that beating, but he knew his rights. And just as a side note, I think it's very important to know our rights as Americans. Know what the Constitution says. Know the laws of the land. Be aware of those kind of things. Paul knew his rights. He knew he was a Roman citizen. And he knew that it was illegal for him to have that happen to him without due process to be scourged. This reminds me a lot of, under this subject heading of are you ready, the type of things that we deal with in this life that are extremely difficult. Things that cause us to question whether God loves us or he's there for us. Things that we might find ourselves in the middle of going, how am I even here? Maybe you can even think back over, you know, this last year. We're only five months in and maybe you have something that's fresh right there. You remember that? How difficult that was? Do you remember that? How painful that situation that you were in was? Do you think of those things even now today as I'm saying this? And you think, what is the purpose of me going through this great difficulty? Why am I even dealing with these kind of things to begin with? Why, Lord? Why am I going through this? And I would have to let you know that the answer is found in one simple word. Character. Character. It's during the times of testing. It's during the times of of questioning. It's during the times of difficulty where, you know, my friends aren't friends anymore. or I lost my job or I have this illness or whatever, where something is happening in your life. The threat of this impending doom. There's something that is happening in your life. And it's character. Godly character being cultivated through the trials and the things you cry out to God with and that you're concerned with. Lord, I'm bound to this problem. Lord, I'm in this situation. The Lord promises that all things will work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Yes, even that. Oh, no way that. No, yes, even that. Well, I can't see how that would even work out for the good. Well, that's because you're leaning on your own understanding. Our own pea-sized brain of understanding. We don't know the big picture. We don't see what's happening. But difficulty comes, it comes, and it comes fiercely. What do we do? How do we respond? How do we live? Are we ready to do what God's called us to do? Because I think that just by natural causes, we take the path of least resistance. 
We want to go wherever it's the easiest. And don't get me wrong. I don't think any of us sign up. Hey, sign me up for the most difficult life experience that you have. I want to go to a theme park where they have difficult life experiences. And I want to spend three days there at their hotel. And I want to go on all the rides on that one. We don't sign up for that kind of thing. That's ridiculous. By na- by, by, it's just natural that we want to take, well, what's the easy way? What's the, what's the way that I can get there the most unscathed? Sometimes God will call us to walk through the valley of shadow and death, and that same path of righteousness that we're on does at times lead through the valley of shadow and death. Yet we know that the Lord leads us and he guides us. And so Paul says, is it legal for you to even be doing this? And when the Roman centurion, verse 26, heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And the commander answered, with a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And remember, that examination wasn't one of those things you get at a doctor. They were about to examine him to see if he was guilty or not guilty through scourging. It says they withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. So even in the midst of difficulty where Paul is speaking to his brethren, the Jews, the Lord had pre-already set up pre-existing to that situation, an escape clause for him. I feel like there's so often times in our lives that we do not realize how the Lord is taking care of us and how things could be way worse than they really are. They could be so much more worse and we're thinking, wow, why would God allow this to happen? Yet the Lord has buffered, has buffered us from what could really be taking place. Things that we didn't even know that would fall into place and come to work out for our good in the future. Things that may have happened years ago. Paul's case, he was born into it, into a Roman citizenship. And that helped him later on down the road. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And the next day, verse 30 Because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. See, the Roman commander, if you're just joining with us today, Paul was speaking to the the Jews in Hebrew. And all he knew is that that, that Paul was speaking in Hebrew and then all of a sudden this riot broke out. He wanted to know exactly what was going on. Because the crowd went crazy with one word. Remember that word? Gentile. How it was so offensive that there was only one way to get to heaven. It was so offensive that there was equality and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that there's only way to be, one way to be forgiven of that sin and that's through faith in Jesus. Gentiles, the Jews cried out, how can they be saved? So now it would be found out exactly what Paul had said. And what an opportunity at that. The Roman commander calls all the religious leaders and says, hey, you come and join us and then I'm going to bring Paul and we're going to have a little discussion. And so here's Paul with the chance to speak to the leaders of Judaism about Jesus, which leads us into verse one of chapter 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, 
Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Whoa, what a statement to make. I have lived before God in all good conscience until this day. Well, it's important to note because of this statement that Paul is not saying that having a clear conscience makes you right in the sight of God. Nor is Paul saying that he was sinless and perfect. See, having a conscience, or a good one for that matter, means that you do something that's wrong, then you deal with it because your conscience is saying you shouldn't be doing that. You need to say you're sorry, you need to apologize, or even your conscience before you act would be saying don't do that. So having a clear conscience doesn't mean that you're right with God because there's some people today that say, you know, I'm fine with doing this. I don't have a problem with that. Or maybe they're doing uh, something uh, even though that it's wrong. And they're like, I don't have a problem with doing that. And my conscience is clear. So Paul isn't saying that having a clear conscience makes you right with God just so that you know. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, from the New Living Translation, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. And that is an an amazing verse. To, to understand that, hey, my conscience is clear, but ultimately I'm deferring to God who will judge all things. And so in verse 2, when the high priest commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So Paul says, men and brethren, I've lived, all, lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Smack him in the face. Well, who knows exactly why Ananias caused Paul to be struck. But what we do know is that that very strike was against the law of Moses, which the high priest should have been upholding. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, it says, If there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be. If the wicked man deserves to be beaten, then the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. So according to this this justice system, that a man was not to be struck unless he was found guilty. And so the high priest, the man that you think would be, you know, watching every letter of the law, so to speak, causes an illegal, commands an illegal action to take place, smacks Paul in the face. And then Paul said to him in verse three, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Now, we don't know the tone of Paul's voice, right? We're just reading something. That's why, you know, you know in, in emails and things, you're like, what did they mean by that? Because that could be really nice or really rude. Like, how, how exactly did you mean that? So when you're reading this and, and Paul says, God will strike you, I mean, I don't think it really is uh, hard for us to imagine the type of tone that he might have used. I mean, could you imagine yourself as a man being open-handed, smacked in the face? Uh, what kind of emotions might be caused to, uh, to stir at that point? I don't know, but I think it's probably not a far stretch to be like, hey, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. What was he saying exactly? 
whitewashed wall. Jesus used that type of terminology to describe the religious leaders in his day because they were nice and clean on the outside. He said, you are a whitewashed sepulcher or a a tomb where you look nice and white and clean on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones, decay and rot and filth. So this whitewashed wall terminology, you know, if you want to talk about euphemisms of the day, would deal with somebody that was completely hypocritical. You look nice and clean on the outside, but inside you're disgusting. You have the appearance of being right before God, but inside you're dead. You are spiritually dead. And this actually was an accurate statement that Paul made of Ananias, for he was known, Ananias, the high priest, was known, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, as a thief, a man that would rob from the common tithes of the priests. He was known for his greed. And one commentator by the name of Bruce said this, and I quote, referring to Ananias, he did not scruple to use violence and assassination to further his interests, end of quote where you find religious leaders using their position of power and influence for selfish gain and for evil, for evil things. And this has been the problem throughout history, where we've seen men and women that were set up to be spiritual leaders have actually not been very spiritual themselves. And that's why, regardless of a person's position, whether they're on stage, they're called a pastor or a leader or whatever, you'll know them by the way they live their lives. Because not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does, who actually does the will of our heavenly father. Because you have a lot of people today that say, hey, man, I'm a Christian. I was born in America. Or, hey, man, I was, I'm a Christian. I went to Sunday school. Or, hey, man, I was, I'm a Christian because, you know, my grandma was a Christian. And my, my mama was a Christian. And now I was just born a Christian. I popped out waving that little Jesus flag. You know, go team. You know, like, no, that's not the way that it works. You have to truly decide yourself to follow Jesus or not. Ananias was eventually, history tells us, was hunted down and killed by his own countrymen. He was a terrible man. He was a terrible leader. And that's why we need to know what the word of God says so that if leaders arise professing one thing, we know them by how they live, not by what they say. And verse four, and those who stood by said to Paul, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. See, Paul knew that the office of the high priest was more than just the man, and he respected the office. I feel like that would behoove us as Christians today to know that the office is more than the man. Whether that be civic leaders, whether that be church leaders, whether that be our government, that the office is more than the man. I think recognizing that the office is more than the, por- more than the person, well, will help us maintain our witness as Christians, and especially in dealing with those that are in charge of certain things. You can deal with people that might just be shady crooks. And, like, how are they in this office? doesn't mean that you allow yourself to be taken advantage of and, and don't act wisely, but you understand that, you know, that office is, that office is worthy of respect. In Exodus 22, verse 28, where Paul was quoting from, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. So 
Paul was really excited about this meeting that he was going to have. And it starts off by getting smacked in the face. That's not really the way he probably saw it playing out. Can you imagine that? You finally get to speak to the guys. Like, they knew who Paul was. They knew who he was. He, he was a, Paul was a huge leader in, in the Pharisaical movement, which is the, the, the camp of the Pharisees. But when Paul perceived in verse 6 that one part of this religious high council was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Keen insight. Pharisees, if you're taking notes, Judaism had two main sects. It had the Pharisees and it had the, and the, and it had the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the legalists. The Sadducees were the liberalists. Both were not good because the legalists will add to the word of God and the liberalists will take away from the word of God. You want to know what the word of God says and you want to live your life according to that. Watch out for people adding on the rules and regulations on top of the word of God. And then just as much equally watch out for the people that are saying, man, you don't have to listen to that and you don't have to do that and taking away from the word of God. Now, This argument explodes because Pharisees believed in the supernatural and life after death. The Sadducees did not. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in in life after death. They believed in annihilation. And so one good way to be able to remember the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and what they believed, the Pharisees believed in the supernatural. And they had that hope of eternal life. The Sadducees didn't. And they had no hope of life after death. And so they were Sadducee. Okay, so that's not meant to be that's not meant to be funny, even though some of you laughed out of courtesy. I appreciate that. But it was basically that they, that's how you'll remember. They were sad, you see, because they had no hope of eternal life after death. So Pharisees believed in the spiritual and the Sadducees did not. And if you laughed because you thought that was funny, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, these two groups of people uh, didn't usually work well with each other. Uh, they, they actually very much disliked each other. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they butted heads all the time, and they were enemies of each other. However, they found a way to unite with each other against Jesus. Back in the day, the Pharisees and Sadducees combined their forces and said, let's take out Jesus. And here we see it again, Pharisees and Sadducees combining again to take out the messenger of Jesus, who was Paul. One commentator who I really, really enjoy listening to, David Guzik, pastors Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, and he said, it is, he said this, and I quote, It's strange how people with nothing in common will come together as friends to oppose God and his work, end of quote. How people that are usually enemies of each other will unite themselves against God and against the work that he's doing. It's a remarkable thing how you'll see that even today where, where people that don't like each other will say, hey, we don't like them more than we don't like you, so let's work together to stop them. And we understand that that's actually an evil that's, that's spurred by Satan trying to shut down the work of God. And when he had said this, verse 7, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose, protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. The Pharisees took his side, hey, 
we, hey, if an angel spoke to him, if God revealed himself to him, who are we to fight against God? This is very reminiscent of what Gamaliel, do you remember Gamaliel? One of the most renowned rabbis, teachers, most influential men in his time. In Acts 5, speaking of Peter and the other apostles with him who were preaching the same gospel of Jesus, Gamaliel said in Acts 5, 38-39, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. What a thing to say. And what a small little you know, nugget of truth for us that if it is of man and if we are trying to manufacture something and make something happen and in our own resources and strength trying to conduct something, it will come to nothing. But if we're led by the Holy Spirit, if we're doing what God has called us to do, who are we? Who are we? But just servants of the Lord to say, Lord, if you have called me to do this, this is what I will do. And we know that nothing will stop the work of God. And you have that confidence as a follower of Jesus Christ, that if you're doing the will of the Lord and you're following after him, nothing will stop or hinder God's work from taking place. In verse 10, now when there arose a great dissension of the religious leaders, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. There he is again. And remember, 200 flights of stairs was the Roman uh, uh, fortress outside the, the court of the Gentiles of the temple. And the Roman commander couldn't go into the area that was for Jews only, so he was watching from a distance, and he sends soldiers down, grabs Paul, takes him out. Paul's almost going to be ripped to pieces again. Maybe some of you can relate to how that might feel. You feel like parts of you are all over the place. Over here and over there, and oh, there's my heart. Oh, you know, like that kind of thing. And, you pick, and, 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 and you're wondering, where, do I, where am I going? Am I coming? Am I going? Am I upside down? Am I right side up? What's happening in my life? I feel like I am, I don't even know what to do. And maybe you would even say, Lord, I thought you called me to do this. I thought this was something that you wanted me to do. Listen to what verse 11 says as we finish up here this morning. But the following night, as Paul's beaten and he's broken and he's in the barracks, He's in prison. It says, The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. The Lord stood by him. Just as the Lord stands by you and stands by me, the Lord stands with us. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, it says, Be strong. And of good courage, do not fear, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you, nor forsake you. When we are alone by ourselves, the Lord stands with us. When our friends desert us, the Lord stands with us. When we feel defeated, the Lord stands with us. When we're exhausted, when we feel like giving up, when we can't go on any longer, the Lord stands with us. And so Jesus stood with Paul, encouraged him. And even using that same phrase that he used to his disciples, used with his disciples, be of good cheer. The knowledge of the presence 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus in our lives in any circumstance should cause us to be of good cheer. Because we do feel alone. We do feel like I'm the only one that believes the way that I believe in my industry. I'm the only one that's dealing with this kind of thing. I feel like nobody gets me and nobody understands me. The Lord is with you. He gets you. He understands you. He knows what's happening with your kids and with your job and in your personal life and your thoughts. He knows all of those things. And he is with you and he promises that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. So Jesus appears to Paul and says, be of good cheer. Even as you have witnessed of me in Jerusalem, you're going to also go to the mega city. You're going to go to Rome. This has been a long road for Paul thus far. This whole experience began back in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, where Paul says this. Listen, I'm going to highlight some things that bring us to where we're at and we'll conclude. Acts 20, verses 22 and 20, uh, through 24. Paul says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. And remember, we talked about not being moved. Does God call us to do difficult things at times? Yes. Because it's difficult, does that mean that God's not calling us to do that? No. We need to know what God is calling us to do. But Paul says in verse 24 in Acts 20, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This was his mindset on his way to Jerusalem. I am bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, even knowing that it's going to be extremely difficult. In Acts 21, verse 4, It says, in finding disciples, we stayed seven days and they told Paul through the spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. So he had people that were Christians following the Lord and the Holy Spirit showed them, man, there's difficulties and there are pains uh, awaiting Paul in Jerusalem. And in verse 10, it says, as they stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus of Acts 21, verse 10, came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt The man that we're studying this morning took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit's showing Paul back in Acts 20, hey, dangers await for you in Jerusalem. He's showing other Christians, dangers await you. Even a guy uses a prop, takes Paul's belt, binds his own hands and says, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered and said, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready, or excuse me, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's where we got our phrase, are you ready? He says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die. And we saw that that word meant readily ready. I am always ready not only to be bound, but to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, we ceased saying, the Lord's will be done. And now Paul's in Jerusalem. 
He has his chance to speak. He's witnessing to the Jews there, the, 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 the people that he loved and cared about. And then the following night, verse 11 again in Acts 22, where we finished this morning, that night after he was arrested, after being beaten again, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, as you've done what I've called you to do in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. We go through difficulties, we'll have roadblocks, but what lies ahead is greater than the difficulty. It's about our character. It's about preparing us for the next thing. Being ready to do the will of the Lord means you're ready to experience the things that will help you be prepared for what the Lord has called you to do. Nothing is accidental. Nothing is just like, oh man, it must have been some lack of oversight on this one by the Lord. No, see, everything will work together for the good. Even those things that are difficult. You might think, well, why is the Lord calling me to do this difficult thing? Because he's with you. He's with you. It's going to be him working through your life. So be of good cheer this morning, Vision City Church, and knowing that the Lord is with you. And may we be ready to do what he has called us to do. Amen.